Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Marcellus shares his path as a gas trader for over a decade, learn how he survived graduating into the great financial crisis, how he got his first break, the setup at a large energy company doing prop energy trading, and how that was different from a trading house, as well as two key pieces of wisdom he shares near the end on how to position yourself for a similar career. Enjoy. Okay, Marcellus Wallace, welcome to the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks, Patrick. So it'd be great if you could just give the listeners a short summary of your bio. Yeah, for sure. So a bit about myself. Um, basically moved uh, to the East Coast from the Middle East when I was younger, um, and then worked out through university, ended up going to study computer science in university, uh, did computer internships in IT programming, didn't really enjoy it, uh, switched to more of a business focus. Later on, did some internships at Fortune 50 company, some trade desks, different products. Uh, ended up doing it. One of those internships was on energy desk, and I was in natural gas group. Um, and some interesting things happened. I, you know, I graduated in that 2008, 2009, uh, fun times. Uh, so basically, ended up graduating jobless. Uh, desk opportunity opened up on the desk, probably four or five months after I graduated um, and then moved out to, to do that uh, and was trading, you know, started as a desk analyst and was moved to being a short-term trader in about a year and a half from there and stayed with that company, a large oil and gas company for nine years. And then after that, moved on to trading at a bigger, you know, one of the bigger merchant trading houses for a few years, and now I'm over at a smaller hedge fund uh, doing sort of same thing, uh, mainly financial energy trading, natural gas. Awesome. Thanks for that quick summary. So I think what's really interesting about your background is it's all been around energy trading or natural gas trading, but you've kind of seen or had the perspective from d several different types of firms and several different cycles, right? Um, yeah. So I'd love to I'd love to just, before we kind of dive into that, let's go all the way back to like undergrad. You were, you said you're computer science initially. What kind of attracted you to the trade? You know, when you got on the trading desk um, for that internship, what, what made it kind of stand out that you said, Hey, I want to do this long-term. And then um, just give me a little more detail in terms of like when the financial crisis hit um, and you were going into like your senior year with no job, what, what was going through your mind and how did you kind of, how did you like actually survive for five months before getting a job? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, it was funny. I won't lie. Like, um, I think a lot of kids today are a lot more better prepared uh, back then. And, and we, we weren't that much. 
Um, but basically, my family, friends have some connections in uh, IT. And so my goal coming out of you going into university is like, you know, get a job at Microsoft. That's like the great thing to do. Um, and I had family who lived through the dot-com crisis and things like that. Um, and I really had no idea anything about business at all. Um, and then finally, I really started enjoying my economics courses. And I also did not like the aspect of just sitting somewhere and programming by myself all day. Yeah. So I sort of started to seek other things. And I read Monkey Business. And I was like, oh, investment banking. This sounds so awesome. Well, that's what I want to do. And I switched to like more of a pure business focus and looking at business internships. It's probably when you found Wall Street Oasis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, similar idea. Yeah, around that time. Um, but, but like, again, I won't lie, like computer science, your GPA gets pretty wrecked. Um, so like, I, you know, even though I had a decent GPA, my other courses, uh, like, and coming from a semi-target at that time, and East Coast, like, it just was difficult to really break in. So break into bank, break into like, you're, you're, you're saying break into like front office investment banking. Exactly. Yeah. Like our group, our school got like, you know, one or two banks who come in your sophomore year back then. Um, and after that, it was like, okay, so you go work at Fortune 50, start learning more about it or what 500 or whatever. Um, and I went there and it was just like, it was too slow, but it's, so it's like, okay, investment banking, that's really awesome. I got to do this. This is this, you know, it's a high upside money time, all that. And um, my grades were just slipped a little bit and it was too difficult um, on my ne next round of it, like internship time. And, and I missed out, you know, the, all the banks that quickly interviewed. Um, and then, you know, went down to some buy side and just couldn't quite get it. You know, it was always like a second or third candidate sort of thing. And then out of the blue was like this, oh, this opportunity to come do energy trading in a totally different place and try this out. And literally, I had no idea about it. But I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get this, get finance on my resume. This is great. Um, and then investment banking two years from now. <laughs> and, and, and basically, I went there and, man, it was a great experience. Like, um, you know, I did not really understand at the time, like, how many different facets of buy side trading there is or buy side money management. And I really didn't understand if customer deals or we not, but basically my job was to do like more research um, for like fun and more of like fundamental base trades around certain assets that the group had, or just straight out like speculative trading physically. And, and, it, and, you know, like this was, this was, sorry, sorry to interrupt. This is for an internship, like what your sophomore junior year or something. Yeah, right after sophomore. Yeah, we had like a more of like a semester structure. Got it. Um, yeah, so it was like a winter internship. And yeah, and you know, basically finish all my tasks. And back then, you know, we so far away from big data. So these guys were just shocked. They'd be like, oh, give me a project. It's going to take them two weeks. Macro up some stuff. And I'm like, boom, there you go. Two days later and, and sit there bored waiting for like trading data end so you can go up to your trader and ask questions and update the model or whatever. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. This is really what I want to do. Uh, and this is sort of like similar to the stuff I've read. Um, and they wanted me to come back. But, you know, this was right before the financial crisis. Everything was sort of hot still. Um, and I was like, no, I want to try different things. Uh, I still really want to, you know, try maybe get an investment banking or like equities or something. Yeah. Um, and then the following year, actually, when I was there, um, uh, 
Bear Stearns went down. And I remember it was like a Thursday or Friday afternoon when we got an email and we're like, we're not trading with Bear Stearns anymore. And on Sunday morning, JP Morgan bought Bear Stearns. I'm like, oh, this is, this is uh, interesting. And, you know, they had some positions they had to clear up and move to uh, basically JP's group now. So I was like, okay, whatever. Things are, you know, still not that bad. So yeah, um, basically from there, I really tried to focus on moving to finance and my next internship, again, just couldn't get into that banking realm, DPA, stuff like that. So you still, you still that, ended up at a bulge bracket though, right? For a little bit? Yeah, exactly. It was on a trading desk though, and it was on a money market desk. And, and, and the main reason for that job, like I just want to learn like, you know, my energy trading fundamental job internship was just more like, build up models, do this stuff. This is what we're doing. And then on the, on, on the other side, in the ball racket, we literally were like, this is the guys you call every day. This is the money market rate. This is what you say, but you don't really try to, like, you're not even an intern. You're just like a person who works there. Right. And I was like, wow, this is a totally different environment. Because it was sell, because it was sell side. And instead of the buy side, you weren't, you weren't actually like doing any analysis to figure out like what was a good exactly. trade. Like, yeah, you know, maybe update some things with some macro, do a little bit of analysis, but your main job is you get us coffee, get us lunch, whatever you get up in the morning and, you know, you talk to these set of customers. And so at that point we were starting to get really bad, like mid, late 2008 and we there was already customers who were pissed off because they had owned like mortgage securities or asset-backed securities or asset-backed paper and you just could hear it they were so pissed off in their voice but they still had to like buy repos or something overnight yeah um and then similar story like recruiting was absolute dog shit that year um and literally i think a month into my internship um Lehman goes down. And I I show up, boss is like, you should have been in like an hour early today. Why? Lehman Brothers went down. And we're not lending money to these US, it was a European firm, these US shops uh overnight. Like it doesn't matter if what broker calls you, ignore them for the next five days as we fucking analyze everything. And yeah, so so that was like really wake up call. Like, oh my God, what did I do? Maybe we're all doomed. Maybe I have to go to law school. Like, I, I really have no idea. Well, so what's interesting is that you were there for five. It was like a long internship kind of through the, it, it sounds like they kept you through that whole turmoil. I mean, they were probably paying you like really low. So they didn't care, right? Exactly. They didn't care. Um, they're just, they wanted you actually to start from the regular time because they wanted like, like a seamless, uh, like one, one interns in next interns in sort of thing. So they train you up, you come in like a few weeks earlier before like other people start like the investment banking and other inter internships. Um, and then, yeah, it was just like very sell side. This is what, this is script you read. This is what you push. This is that. You're basically a monkey. You're a trading assistant. Exactly. Monkey. Completely. Yeah. And you get yelled at if you do anything wrong or, or I mean, I did you get yelled at? Did you get yelled at a lot? Oh yeah, I mean the guy who ran the desk was a total maniac. Tell me, tell me a good story. Oh, I mean, so like one time I like basically said, um, because the lady was leaving, I said, you know, oh, okay, and then she's like, I'm leaving, and then so I said the same thing. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna try to be a little friendly with this, you know, Fortune 500 Treasury guy, and I'm gonna be like, 
oh, you know, I'm so-and-so, oh, I just came, I'm studying this, and he'd be like, and he, like, put me on hold, and he's like, you are an intern. Your name, I don't even care what your name is. Do not tell anybody your name. Nobody cares about what your freaking name is. You have no and nothing, you this, you follow the rules, you just give them the rates, whatever they want to do, you put in the espresso. And I was like, wow, okay, man. And a few times I was staying up, staying late, and like the lawyer or whatever would come over, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, you have to do this. And like, so he was like listening to tapes because they were getting lawsuits all the place because of all the market back security mess. Yeah. And I'm like, this is just totally not what I expected. But um, leverage buyouts were still pretty high, right? It was 08. And then we were working on a really big one. And it seemed like, okay, the bank's going to be busy for like two years. And then the government, the things changed and that fell apart. And then like all the interesting deal flow left, right? So literally now we're just lending money overnight um, and, or sorry, receiving money overnight, repoing. Uh, and, and yeah, like, I mean- Can you explain that to listeners who don't understand the, the receiving money overnight repoing? What, what, what kind of business that is? Just for just a quick 30 seconds so they know what that means. For sure. Basically, so, so like um, the bank has a series of desks, right? You have the equity desk, you have the derivatives desk, you have the fixed income desk, and then you have the money market prime brokerage desk, and then the prime brokerage with the equity desk. So our job was essentially the other desks are really in place to really make the money or or like or make the upside on the customer flow, and we're supposed to fund the entire business, right? So if we're doing like a big deal with a pretty big private equity firm and they're trying to like buy telecom or something, you know, they're going to go out and do bonds and do this stuff. Well, for the traders to manage that flow, they need like a significant amount of capital and margin with different counterparties. So every day we had a different number we had to raise. And if we don't hit that number or we're long or short that, you know, the New York or, or the next office or has to pick up the slack that way. So essentially you're like, taking money from all the other desks, like you're taking margin from everybody else. But at the same time, you're like the most important part of the market of the, of the bank. Because if you, if we don't get this money all overnight, like nobody else's business can be funded. You're basically like you're, you're helping manage the flow of capital so that there's like the right balance each day. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, and um, yeah, and basically, is there a specific name for that desk? I mean, I'm, I don't know trading very well. But. Oh, it, it it's, a, it's just the money market's repo desk. The money market. Oh, the money market's repo desk. Okay, got it. So, for instance, we were doing treasuries, and then another guy was doing repos, which was my boss majority of the time. Yeah. Um, and then all the interesting stuff nobody really wanted to do, but if they wanted to do it, you know, the structures would come up with the product, the, the trading, the derivative guys, and we would be just like, okay, we're going to sell this amount of commercial paper as a better rate um, for three months or whatever. But at that point, that business was pushed aside and everybody was just doing overnight treasuries and money. And that's what we were doing essentially. So that's how, that's how essentially the bank funds itself. Perfect. Yeah. And essentially, so Lehman goes down and I see four guys leave the office, barely say bye to each other. And I turn to the guy and he's like, yeah, everybody's going to meet him at the bar later. And, and I was like, okay. So apparently this is bulge bracket trading. Like literally you bring your box to desk every day because anytime you have to fill that box, you've got to be out of there within 30 minutes. So 
it was all very interesting, exciting. That people way, just getting fired. People just getting fired left and right. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. just out of nowhere, like boom, this is the world. And recruiting was, you know, super difficult for anybody who's been around that time. Like I have friends who, you know, are in consulting, invest bank, like private equity now, who literally had no job at that time. Right? We just coming out like there's just no seats. And you were going into your senior year, basically, or you going were in your senior, senior year? year, and and just like, okay, well, you just gotta, you know, try to crush your grades a little bit more in your senior year, um, and then just what was your what was your GPA on a on a U.S. kind of scale? Four point uh, scale. Yeah, my my GPA was around uh, like three point six. Oh, not um, bad. But like, yeah, but again, semi. But not yeah, semi target, non target, semi target, um, especially for the U.S. And then basically, so so. Tell me what's going on through your, what's going through your head. So you're coming through senior year, you're approaching graduation. You have nothing lined up. The whole economy is falling apart. You're heading into the great financial crisis. Um, are you thinking, okay, I'm moving home. What's the, what's the plan? And tell me how you ended up, ended up with a, which, what looks like on paper, a pretty good job eventually. Uh, but it took you a yeah, couple I years mean, to get there. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it, it was funny. I won't lie. Like, uh, uh, there was a few guys who, you know, really were planned and had the right internships. So they got like, picked up right away a lot of people were then looking at like oh should we go do a master's program do that um i actually really like senior year like you know you especially like if you're in a business more oriented program you start to take like majority of courses you like right so i was able to take majority of economics and finance courses and really those are all ones that i can easily do well in so i was able to like really get my gpa up that way um and then just try to try to like see whatever opportunities come around i mean I would say at that time, a lot of us were not really versed in market networking the way guys are now, kids are now. Like, just like, you know, our career center would be like sending out some, but like, look, like right now is a really tough time. There's just not a ton of jobs out there. Um, and, you know, one comes available, like 20 of you people like want to talk about it. Um, and, and, and we didn't really know how to track down alumni that much. LinkedIn wasn't as big back then. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. There was no LinkedIn stuff like that. And our online database was just being really built out. So you were just on WSO trolling the entire time. <laughs> send private messages, figure out anybody who would be willing to Exactly. So yeah. So I, uh, so we ended up like doing our CFA with our, like, our last semester or whatever, just That's to smart. like, yeah, just like, Hey, you know what? We don't have a job lined up. Like it's not, Especially when you're taking those high-end uh, accounting and finance courses, not that much more. Like it's sort of similar stuff you learn. Yeah. Um, and we're still able to have a lot of fun. You know, senior year, you can like take a little bit relaxed, right? You sort of like, but that was a problem. But you were you were only unemployed for five months post graduation. It looks like. So how did the hell? How did you get that? I mean, it seems like everyone would be going up. Yeah, that's a funny one. I mean, like when I graduated. Um, Basically, one moved home, let my dad, did some like tutoring or whatever on the side, just stuff like that, and just, you know, start applying to jobs. And then, you know, my friends are like, oh, I got into this middle market bank, or I got into this, or oh, I'm doing this master's. And, you know, people were starting to get placed. And I was literally at that point like, okay, I, I, I'll take anything in investment banking, or I'll take anything in like asset management side of the world. And I was getting like these back office sort of roles and asset management. And I was just like, okay, I guess I'm just going to have to go to grad school or 
like uh or some later like i don't to you like you had some offers for back office and you're just like i'm not well i was at least like getting interviewed right like those were the roles who were available yeah and then um one day i called a guy uh that i worked for and i said hey um can you give me a reference for this role and you know it's a pretty big firm and he's like oh wow and then and then he called me and he's like oh we may have an opening coming up here because someone just got like moved groups for like a desk analyst and i'm like Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah, sure. Um, and yeah, just by luck, it came about and I was able to, you know. So you were networking, you were networking, which is not, not by a lot, not, not with a lot of people. No, just that no, no, no. So I, I got lucky that way and, um, and came onto the desk and basically was a desk analyst there. Um, and yeah, so, and then at that point, again, um, like it, 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 that time period, a lot of things changed, right? When I did my internship, people were different, paths were different. Um, and I came back and I think we had like a reorg six months into my job and my boss changed right away and they cut the group down in half and basically margin. How did, how did you ever. survive all that? What were you getting paid? Like you're getting paid like 50K? Uh, so my base pay was like 70,000. Oh, pretty good. Uh, Pretty good, yeah, it was. Um, and really, the way you survive is just to be the cheapest person that they like have, and they're like you're the one that's going to survive it. You're just trying to kick out like all the people who are like in a mid mid level level, um, and try to and retire the guys who've done um, well, right? Like the MDs, it's time for you to go, right? Retire the guys that are super expensive that are like coasting. Exactly, yeah. So, so that was uh, so that was sort of the way, um, and. And uh, basically, I uh, was able to do that. Uh, and, then, and then when my boss changed, you know, I was able to start working a lot more with our, like, internal fundamentals guys. Like, because we had specific people who, were, like, their job was just to, you know, I mean, nowadays, we machine learning all their stuff. Now, well, just give me, then, give me a framework. Step back for a second. So this was a large energy company, right? Um, tell me what a trading analyst even does or what, what's, how is it set up? Is there like, there's a separate trading kind of arm of this energy company yep. that deals with like flow, like, is it flow trading? Like what is it? Is there any prop going on? Like where you're making directional bets or is it all just like, um, just flow stuff. So tell me a little bit about, um, you know, how, how you started and just give me a framework for it. Because, you know, if people are as clueless as I am, if the listeners are as clueless as I am, then it would be helpful. Those areas not that much known, but yeah, for sure. I mean, basically, your job is like you're. It's just like a bank trading desk. You're the lowest man vulnerable, but we have um, we have like a scheduling group that schedules all the fiscal assets, and some of those people are more senior people. Some of those people have different skills, so like they're like more like mid office. They sit beside the traders and everything, so you have to be like a conduit between them, risk. And the desk itself scheduler it's called a scheduler basically call them a scheduler yeah but yeah it's like a operations person um and then essentially like the way the desk is set up is you have uh you know certain marketers that were well first off the company sorry is like a full-on subsidiary of this of these large energy companies and their goal is to one market the product and two, the really proper prop trade around the right spots. And then ultimately, if they can find someone who's really, really good, they just like, 
become more like, you know, as long as other parts of business can handle it, they have a prop trading within the business, right? So like our desk was like a hybrid of that where we had essentially a group out that was talking to customers on the ground level. Then we had senior originators who were working with utilities on longer term, larger deals. And then the trade desk gets all that flow every day. So they have to manage all that flow um, and manage and buy opportunistically assets that can help do that. And then uh, likewise, the- You're like buying contracts, selling contracts. You're buying and selling contracts for like, you know, give me an example. So like, you know, what are we talking about? Like oil, oil and gas, like natural gas. Like You live in Northern California. Um, so our, our West group would be buying and selling PG&E CityGate, which is essentially gas that's being sent to, I think Procter & Gamble has a plant out there. Yep. Um, so they're like literally like, okay, this is how much gas we use for a year. We need to hedge it. And then our person would be dealing with that. Now, if they want to do something more complicated, like, oh, we're building a new plant or, oh, we're want to, you know, take out pipe from uh, Arizona to there because we think the Arizona market is, then they'd be working with our originator to go and purchase the gas from our producer and then move it there. And then the trade desk job is to like value all of this stuff, right? So essentially- You said, sorry, you said value or evaluate? Like value all of it, right? So essentially like the, the we need to price it up. And, and if we need to work with structures, um, we need to work with structures. If, if not, we just give what the price is, you know, today, the price for winter gas in the PG&E is this, right? Right. And some sort of spread, some sort of spread or margin on it so that you guys can protect yourself and flow it off. Exactly. And that's what our originators and our salespeople would do. Um, so that was, so that's, so that's exactly sort of the business. And then like, for instance, now we are having a good year or our sales guys are doing well, or we know we're having this Procter & Gamble deal. The guy has a great relationship. Okay. We know we're going to get this deal in two months. So we can start to build a position around that. Okay, we think San Francisco is going to be this. And then from there, that grows to like some of the more senior guys who are just able to like financially trade, right? Because essentially, they're either going to give their positions to the asset side guys, or they're just, you know, or they're going to make money and nobody asks questions. So it sounds like initially it was like four years um kind of learning on the flow side of things, doing more of like, you know, helping the operation side. And then you became a senior gas trader where it was more like trading prop positions and just, and just basically saying, Hey, just go make money. You know what you're doing now. Exactly. Yeah. So like, again, we're, we were very large, pretty profitable at the time. And essentially they, when you are running your asset book and they want to start moving you up, they're like, okay, now we give you your own prop book. And, you know, you can put positions in your prop book and you can put positions in and you can help manage the asset book. Um, and I started to mainly being focused on that. Like I've always been more interested in the fundamental side of the market, um, be it whatever the product sort of that way. Um, so that's when. And that's where you can make a lot more money, right? Do they give you a percentage of the piece? Exactly. That too. Right. Yeah. Like, so tell me how you, the fir first four years kind of doing the more operational, so you went from scheduler eventually to trader or like. Uh, no, so I so I actually skipped scheduling. I was a bit lucky. It's sort of similar to working in a in a bank environment. They sort of moved me from being a desk analyst to like right 
way to like helping the fundamental guys come up with, you know, daily fundamental views for our traders, right? So again, if we're looking at San Francisco, I'm helping figure out how power markets are moving in San Francisco because our guys aren't well-versed in power. I'm not an expert in it, but you know, I'm helping build models to help them gain more knowledge on that. And, and essentially that would, so like, I- And this is just, how do you even do that? How do you even learn that? Just watching other guys and gals doing it? It's mainly watching other guys. You go to a few conferences and then you just delve into the data, right? Like financial models is like supply demand dynamics. Like, are you trying to project out basically what's coming down the pipe in the next three, few months, you know, whatever, that kind of thing? Absolutely, yeah. All, all commodity trading is literally just supply and demand curves. Yep. And then, so here we're building Excel models where historically, you know, I can go on the government EIA site and I can get what the demand is in California gas. And then from there, I can get an idea of what like is Northern California gas um, and then how much it has power is that. So building those kinds of models, figuring out where there's pinch points in the market, um, what month it is. And so that's, so that's essentially the work we do. Cool. So tell me about, say, I mean, you were, you were there for almost seven years, kind of going from, you know, gas trader to senior gas trader, going from, you know, eventually prop. Yeah, exactly. So basically I would say, yeah, you, you said like three, four years in, um, I basically more focused on prop trading. Saw the bigger upside there. That was sort of more. Tell me, yeah. Tell me about money there. So what were you doing? You made 70 K your first year. Did it just gradually kind of bump up or were the big bonuses? How does so, how did the um, so like we were like, I would say 70 K and then like really because we had a pretty good desk that was like getting good deal flow to begin with. And then we had talented traders on top of that. Um, like analyst bonuses were like 50 to 70%, um, depending on what bucket you're in. I mean, maybe 30% if you're really low bucket. Yeah. And then, and then when you got into the junior cash or trader roles, you move like, like now you're like moving up to like more of a senior person in the company. So you're like approaching like probably like a hundred, $110,000 salary, hundred five maybe. And then there, like, again, it's a lot of the bonuses are like bucket structure. So they, there, your bonus is they like a really good year for everybody. They try to keep it, keep you around like one time salary as your bonus. Um, really, if you're awful, low bucket, your group is, you're going to be like 50% of okay. that. Uh, and then, um, and then top bucket can go to like two, two, two to three times salary. Got it. So you're, you're basically your pro progression over those seven years was like, you know, 70 your first year, maybe getting close to six figures in the next few years or a little over six figures. Yeah. I would say once I was like a more senior, like guy who managed the assets and stuff been managing for two or three years. I was probably around, you know, 300 to 400 in a really, in a good year. 300 to 400,000? Yeah. Okay. And then in our, like, one of our banger years, everybody calls it the polar vortex. I don't know if you were living in the, whoever was living in the East Coast, New York and stuff. Q1 of 2014 was super duper cold in New York, Boston, 2015 as well. And yeah, I mean, at that point, you know, they're, the, the guys who were more senior were probably approaching $800,000 level. And then of course, desk heads above that. And why was, why was, why was the weather being so cold? I mean, I can speculate, but it, obviously prices would increase, but were they, had they made correct directional bets? Is that why? Like, I mean, cause like if you're just doing flow and you're just kind of making sure things are even, it doesn't, you shouldn't really care if it goes up or down. Right. Um, but you're saying like they had enough, they had enough, 
ability to see that there was this polar vortex coming and then they kind of position the book appropriately um, to take advantage of it? I mean, truly, I think, you know, I think Goldman was the top shop that year. I don't think anybody ever sees polar vortex coming. Uh, you just sort of like put on what you think is like best value trade. And then some people, depending on how gutsy they are, or whatever. Um, and then you, it's some of it is luck, right? So that year, the weather all lined up, supply was looking low. For ourselves, because we bought assets that would do okay in certain years, they like just blew out that year. So like we owned storage and we were able to, you know, really put on more risk around our storage and we were able to like, you know, do much So what if, what if uh, yeah, what do you think if polar, if the, it was the opposite, let's say it was an abnormally warm year, um, what would it have looked like? Like you would have taken on big losses? In an abnormally warm year, you would barely, like you'd almost lose like, 10% of your, the money you paid for the storage. So then you really got to like trade against it. And then the good prop guys do well, while other people just depend on hopefully customer flow or, I mean, that, that's so how you, you are. You are directionally always hoping for colder. Um, or no. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the setup. I mean, I've, I've been short a lot of my career. Natural gas has had a very long-term downturn since I went into the industry. But yeah, I mean, the absolutely like it's all it's just like uh, the guys who, you know, had the huge hedge fund like equities. Owning vol is always easier to make money than to sell vol. Um, and and yeah, we, we went to like gas prices went to like in Chicago, I don't know, 50, 60 dollars that year. New York, higher 150, maybe one day or I can't remember. Um, and yeah, we had assets that we were able to take advantage of that. And then on top of that, we, because once you're doing well, you can just add on risk and the company's not asking questions, right? Got it. So let's move on because you have other interesting jumps in your career. And I want to get get the listeners. I don't want to keep you too much longer. Real quick. So you're, you're doing really well there. Almost seven years. You're now a senior gas trader. It sounds like you're making really good money. Um, why jump? Why look for something different? So... Um, so like that in those kind of companies, so like what happens is, uh, and it sort of, I guess, happens in, on the bank bank side too, is you really have to keep moving up and you have to keep like, it becomes a bigger politics game, bigger story that way. And you have to start to like really succeed, you know, mentoring people, all these other things. And they don't really care like if you're doing that well as a trader, because at the end of the day, if we're working on a $200 million origination deal, over 20 years with, you know, India, um, that's going to outweigh anything uh, like most traders do. So they just view it in a business that way. Um, and I didn't really fit that mold. So then at that point you start to look at, okay, do I go to more to like a merchant structure where you sort of know like what the costs are, things like that coming in. But you said you, you did you, sorry to interrupt. You said you didn't fit that mold. Can you unpack that a little bit? Like, was it more becoming more of a sales role and less of a trading role? Exactly. It becomes more of a sales role, more of a like a personality, make sure everything's okay. Politics. That yeah, I get it. Politics. Because it's the company's brand, right? And, and I mean, it's the same at a lot of banks now and, and shops where it's just like, at the end of the day, we, they have the bazillion dollar balance sheet and they can do those really big deals and nobody else can. So it's going to be very difficult for anybody to compete with them. But at the same time, they're like, well, is it really the originator, the trader that's special, or is it just our business, our brand? Um, and so that way I was just like, okay, there's not a lot of 
I don't, I don't think I can go to on to being head of trading or whatever, because there's, I'm going to be stuck in meetings all day and I'm going to be on zoom and be talking. Okay. This, this person had a argument with this person and, or we lost this customer. Why? And, and I was just like, I'm not fit for that. Got it. Okay. So what, what was, yeah. What was your thought process? What are the exit opportunities of a senior gas trader at a large energy company? <laughs> I will lie. Yeah. Exit opportunities are not like, cause you're pretty niche at that point. So it's like, you got to find the right place that works for you, um, offers the right upside. But once we had the bull markets in those years, news also started to come out about like how people pay. And you started to see like, okay, the, these places where these career make it to the top, be ahead of trading, get the high, high salary, everything. Um, they don't pay that well based on, you know, other places that are just, you know, smaller, more nimble, more performance based. And at that point I started to look around because I'm like, hey, you know what, I'd rather, you know, bet on myself more so. And 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 talk to various hedge funds, talk to other people. Um, and also banks were exiting the space. So merchants were gaining more of a foothold in. Um, and I ended up going to one of the trade houses, one of the larger trade houses out there. Um, and they were just in the span of like really growing their gas and power business. Um, uh, I think when I joined there, like they were the second or third year in that they really own physical assets and everything. Um, and like a much different mindset, right? Basically. Explain to me when you say a, a trading house, what, is, what does that mean? Like, do they have their own capital from LP or are they raising capital from LPs and trading it? Is it their own prop? money that they're trading tell me how that how that works so i mean so the big trading houses are like you know the traffic area of the tall area uh those kinds of shops out those guys and cargill or some other ones in there too uh castleton's another one now um so those kinds of shops and and essentially the guys who own the business have some of their own money in similar to like a hedge fund structure. Yeah. But then they are buying these assets that make billions of dollars in revenue every year. So they need to borrow a ton of money from various banks. And their core business is turning over these assets and making a bunch of money. But because they start doing really, really well, um, they're able to then, you know, put on their own positions and they're able to, you know, basically take way more risk, right? So, like, yeah, so explain it to me. So like, let's say, let's say the play, the hedge fund you went to, it's like a, we'll call it a trading house. You're saying, let's pretend this, this people who founded this have a hundred million dollars. Mm -hmm. You're saying they would then leverage that up to have buying power of what, a couple billion or something like that. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. They'd go out, they'd what purchase, like they, they bring in traders who are good and then start playing in the market. Right. And basically. Yeah. Yeah, so like our main, our, like that trade house's main focus is crude trading. Okay. And they own like crude storage everywhere. And then they own crude vessels everywhere. And then they own like pipeline capacity. And then when we were moving into gas and power, you know, we were taking large positions in California and the Northeast because producers were doing a lot of shale gas, things like that. Um, and you and you really get these originators come from the banks because really this, a lot of these businesses were bought from the bank banks, and they're working on you know like so like I like the oil and gas. Like are, 
are these trading houses that they're, they're not buying the actual company underlying companies they're buying positions and contracts for exactly so so like for instance they would be like we're offering credit to these producers and then we're going to offset their credit in the market and we're going to manage all of their assets and all they're going to tell us every day is how much gas they produce and they're going to balance that and the oil and gas company larger oil and gas companies also do that but there's some riskier deals out there, right? That they can't touch or like, you know, they have good credit that's that. But these guys can come in like a traffic era or- These guys can come in. These guys can come in and do a higher risk. Exactly. They often make higher margin. Deal, which, which the banks used to do. And, um, and some- The, banks, the banks can't do it as much maybe because of all the, the prop trading restrictions and stuff like that. Exactly. Walker, Walker rule was a big one, right? Yeah. And- yeah, so they would be, so like this originator would do a $40 million deal. Well, somebody's got to manage it. So now you have an entire imprint there. And now they're like, well, we actually uh, have a ton of data. We have a ton of analytics. Like we just want like, we want people who can come in and make $20 million a year or, or something on, on top of that. Um, and, and that's when they start to really grow out. And I mean, some of them, it all depends. Like, like if, if the if the head of if the company is owned by four guys, right, and they know like owned by what owned by what? Sorry, if it's owned by like three or four guys at the top, and they all know that like we're gonna cover our costs this year, we closed this big deal last year. They they can risk their like like half their year, right? Like 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 um, and again, I, I saw that at the oil and gas companies, giant the big guys too, but there was at least like a little more okay like explained or you know if it was a big loss it was because you know we were working on building a power plant that didn't happen or was hedged wrong or something mm -hmm. this one i literally like we're just like oh yeah we like this position we're going max more and and you're like well he owns company well like super super concentrated bets basically exactly and and that was and that was and that was it um and then so basically they wanted some people like myself to come in and help either build a new business or help the current physical businesses. And then the moment you do that, that's like, congrats, you earned your salary. Now we expect you to prop trade on top of that. Um, but we're, we're not going to give you really like, it's not like going to Millennium or Citadel or something like that. We're going to give you these very specific risk rules and this and that. It's more like, when you're down $3 million, we'll call you. <laughs> it's like, it's the wild west. They're basically saying, Hey, just go. They're saying, Hey, uh, how much, so what's your P and L though? Like what, how much money do you have to trade with? So like you paid for your salary. Great. Now. Yeah. So like your seat cost typically is going to be like 2 million nowadays in those kind of places. And then that's the thing. Cause like, again, 2 million a year. Uh, yeah. Like, so you have to make 2 million profitably to pay back your seat. Which is like, yeah, um, and then, and then in what, why is it, why is it $2 million? Is this just the, the, for the access to all the markets and all the analytics? So like, that's, that's the thing. Again, um, it's all discretionary for most, some of them do give you a percentage, write it in, but it, a lot of it is discretionary and it's really based on how many businesses we have, how many people we have, and do you believe in the brand long-term, right? And so essentially, I, I don't understand, sorry, I don't understand. What do you mean by like? When they when you say it costs two million for your seat, are you saying like, um, 
are, is this the the for the trading house? This is this is their cost to kind of put you in that seat to give you everything. Yeah, that's their view. So their view is that we have four traders in your group. Your costs are eight million, and then you have your back office, your middle office, your accounting, your lawyers, everything. So you guys got to cover all this, or nobody's getting a bonus. Got it. And and that's 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 and like if, if we had a really tough year in China, you know, we may boost your seat costs a little. And if we had a really awesome year in Germany, we may bring it down. Um, so the, like, it, a lot of the larger guys are now fully very discretionary that way. Um, so a few of them are still formulaic, um, but like, you know, like when I came in, a majority of them were like, just like, look, this is what people get paid. And you basically would have to wait after a good year because then you can call up a headhunter, call up all your buddies on the street, be like, this is what I got. Like, whoa, that makes no sense. Or, whoa, that's awesome. You're the best seat in the town because it was discretionary. Got it. So, so they were paying the $2 million wasn't payment to you necessarily, but it was just the cost overall. So, how much were they paying you um, based similar to like, what was it like 120, 150, something like that? Very similar to majority of senior buy side roles um, where you're making 200, 250 base. Yeah. Um, and then if you're going to make more than that, you better like be, be like bringing in an actual full on physical business because they're like, well, you got to have like some constant cash flow here. Right. Explain, explain the physical business aspect of it. What do you mean by that? So bringing for instance, in we, so like my, my boss would manage a lot of producer deals. And because again, we were at this trade house, we were able to take credit with like private equity backed, you know, like really crappy companies. Um, but they're just producing crappy gas that nobody really wants and getting cash flow. So all they want to do is they just want to hedge. So they want some exotic hedge and they want to make sure the costs are fixed. So if you're bringing, if you're bringing that deal into the, you're saying, so if you're bringing that deal exactly. into the- And for us to, but for us to manage that, like anybody, you have to own like physical assets and you have to like buy the gas from this. I mean, essentially on Twitter, it's called shit coast. <laughs> you have to buy from these Goes and you have to move it to the market every day. So you have to hire a scheduler. If that scheduler doesn't show up to work, we have we have two million dollars of risk on the day. So somebody else in the office better do it. Yeah. Um, and you so like once you take all of those responsibilities, they they're willing to give you a bit more of a big higher base and stuff like that. Makes sense. Um, to be more on par with like the head desk, the head desk at a bank or a large gas company did you bring any of that business or were you just really more just a prop uh kind of loan gun I, I was really more like a prop guy but i did do some of that stuff when i was at the oil and gas company so like i would go and be like the guy who you know the, when the private equity guy wants to really and again it's not like the really the, the investment guys it's more like the operational people right so they want to come in and they want to be like, okay, like really, what are we thinking about this market? Or why are you trying to get me to do this? I'd be like, the guy who comes in and be like, look, this is what we see in the market. This is what the vendors see. Get them closer to our deal structure sort of thing. Or if, or if he brings up new things, then go back to my boss and propose things that way. Um, some other guys, they bring in direct business. Um, and this sounds super lucrative, man. Like, so you, what's your best, do you mind sharing like what your best year is? And then like what your average is in the last, like say three or four years, it sounds like you were already doing really well um, at your previous, the large energy company. As, as I said, like that, that the bigger year at the oil and gas company was like the, the vortex year, <laughs> the vortex year was like, you know, we, we, 
a lot of us approach some figures. Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, I would say in like a top bucket year where it's not a polar vortex, um, you could pull down 600 US sort of to 700. So you're saying you made, did you make over 600 one year? Yeah. Yeah. You did. Yeah. And so like now is it, is like in a no, more normalized year, is it closer to five? Or is it still six, seven? Because you're, you're, I mean, you're, you're a head trader somewhere, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so like the trading house, sorry, the, the way they work is essentially, as I said, you have an unwritten discretionary, you get 10% of your book. And then once you cover it at 2 million or whatever your cost, everything from there, you get 10%. And really they're looking to hire guys who make 10 every year, which is not easy always. Um, if you're not making five, they probably will not want to keep you around unless they really like you or you came from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there's people out there this year who made 40, 50. Um, so you can think about how much money that comes in. Yeah, 40 to 50 mil and to making 10% they're, they're clearing four or 5 million in the year. Exactly. So tell me about like, is this, is this normal? These, these numbers seem, you know, I, I heard I interviewed another trader way back, like I think episode 30 something. This is like 160. So my, my memories, but I remember him getting paid well over 400 pretty early on in his career as well. Is this, are you just talented? Is this getting into this industry just super lucrative? And tell me how, um, tell me about the risks associated with obviously. I, I, I would actually say like, it is like other buy side roles where it can be really lucrative. The only difference is like, I see like a lot, like now with these like equity sort of path guys go banking, hedge fund, this, that, um, like unless you go to a multi-manager or something, you have a designate, it, it, they really have difficulty tying your compensation to the book. While on the commodity side, if, if you are good or if, and, and really the head of the company, you know, he was like swinging hundreds of millions of dollars days or weeks. Like, you know, it's possible. So like, it's more like he actually, these guys are actually like, just as crazy smart as some of these like top hedge fund guys. So they, they have the foresight to see, you know, in three years, Europe looks super tight and I need a European team by three years. So I'm going to start hiring these guys. And if I have to bring someone from a bank or someone, I'm going to pay them a higher base. Right. But by the time we get there um, and we're up 8 million or whatever, you know, beginning of the year and he sees a bigger opportunity, he's going to be like, all right, if I have the right people, they're going to ramp it up. But the wrong people, I'm going to get rid of them and maybe bring in the right people. Um, and, and really, it sort of becomes their position, right? Like, at the end of the day, they're getting 90% of that, right? Right. So, so, like, that's where I would say, like, we've had some very unique opportunities. But, I mean, I've met some guys who are, like, you know, they'll never help manage anyone, build a book, anything like that. But they're just, like, talented traders and they know the industry um and and they can you know put on the right bets at the right times um and develop uh this year we had some really unique events we had a polar vortex in texas that really just knocked up the whole market um but we also had a crazy cold japanese winter uh, and in europe been cold so so like it, commodities have actually definitely come back into the forefront after I don't know, 10, 15 years here uh, and call it the super cycle as some people call it out there. So, so I do think there's definitely like room for people who are good that aren't going to 
do well and get compensated high in the next few years. But I would say in the downturn years, um, you know, like a lot, you'd have to be like almost a desk head, a senior person to be able to get like 10% of book or something and be able to have the ability to put on the risk like at a millennium or something to make at least five to 10. And I mean, if you're not making that there, it's not worth their time, it's not really worth your time, but, but ideally, yeah, they want us, they want to find the one guy who, you know, can ramp to 50 or whatever. Yeah. So tell me, but tell me a little bit about like, just for, for kids listening to this and they're like, how do I even get started into this? You know, they're at school and they're thinking, Hey, this sounds better. Like getting out of the buy side of like actually trading and taking directional bets. This sounds really exciting. How would they even go about doing that? Like what's the best way to set themselves up? Yeah. So for sure, I mean, nowadays, like all trading, we are more quantitative leading and we have a lot more data stuff. So like you definitely want to have not just like an economics background, but you do want to have a baby. I mean, like at least some sort of like I code or do some Python or something like that. Python, data analytics, SQL. Exactly. Because it's just going to help you like get through all of the data, right? Nowadays. Um, and then after that, it's just like, okay, now is, is like, are you really interested in the physical side of the business or the paper side? If you're really interested in the paper side, you, you're just doing the exact same thing as the guy who wants to start out of the buy side at 0.72 or whatever, right? You're reading the right books, you're coming up with investment ideas, you're following the market, you're doing that. If you at some point, you're like, no, I really, and I'm more interested in the physical side, then you either have to figure out, you know, are you a really soft skill, salesy strength person? Or are you going to be more of like a data heavy sort of person? And, and if you're more of a data heavy sort of person, you just have to start targeting those specific firms, right? So like, you know, there's a couple oil and gas companies out there who are like known to, you know, hire the top people from schools, you know, UT Austin, places like that. Um, but really they'll take anybody, right? Who is quality, right? Well, is, can you name some of those firms for the list? Yeah, sure. So like the biggest, the biggest, the best known one on the gas side is, is BP. Um, BP is basically like you go there two, three years and like you have the ability to become a trader after, or you just will gain enough knowledge from all the guys there that you'll find your foot somewhere and then like you'll land somewhere in the industry. And, and they'll do similar thing. They'll like run you through scheduling, run you through things like that. Then cool. you have other firms like a traffic gear up who will literally say, we just want someone smart who's interested in the physical side, but understands that you're not probably going to make money for like for you. And if you're willing to really learn the business, we will give you all the tools to make you a niche expert in that. And then Trafigura, right? Trafigura is Yeah, is, Trafigura is like very, very hardcore about their graduate program. That they way. do more than just energy though, right? They do across it's like profit. They do then that's my point. Like they may just they may put you like on a silver desk when you want to trade power or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And then some of the banks will still recruit that way, looking for specific people that way. Um, but like for instance, power, like they'll look for a lot more quantitative people because there's a lot more 
at times, you know, a uh, lot, lot more data they're working with, a lot more stuff that way. Do you, do you feel threatened at all? Because are you, a, would you consider yourself a data person? Do you feel threatened at all about these younger kids coming up with a much better data background and analytics background? Than you? I, I do at times, like I, I do find it funny. Like I would say, like I use some tools and I think like my boss at the time would get reports from like seven analysts at the oil and gas company who are like the specific analysts in each area. And those guys are probably running Excel sheets that have like 10, 10 data tabs behind them and massive macros. And they're summarizing all this and they're sending it. And now I can literally sit here and go through like all of my models. And I'm like, like, again, like we're not super sophisticated. We're not a Citadel Millennium, like the castle is like on the cutting edge of like big, big data these days. And I can do all that stuff literally in 30 minutes. Like, it's just, it's pretty wild. Um, so, but like, I think it's just going to get more so that way. Um, and then a lot of these firms know they've lost their enter, their information edge. So like, for instance, there probably was a guy at VTOL or wherever who wrote in some spreadsheet for 10 years, like, this is what this does. And somebody's inherited that spreadsheet. And at some point, they somehow it's found its way somewhere. And they have like gone to some really smart computer science, you know, like computer engineer kid. And they're like, look, can you recreate this? And they have. So now we literally have vendors who just are doing big data stuff, you know, like uh, Winmac, Enervis, all these guys. Um, so like, I do think, yeah, absolutely. Any part of trading going to have to be data verse in the future. That's just a part of it. And the information edge is getting harder and harder to take. So there's upside and downside in that, right? Um, cool. But but yeah, so for sure that would be, um, but yeah, as I said, they would have to target those sort of specific sort of uh, programs that way. Um, and then and then really be willing to, if you're gonna, if you're gonna be like a physical side, which again, as I said, like, uh, like the polar vortex, you know, one day gas is trading $7, next day trading $30, the next day trading 14, you know, the, the you're going to be able to buy physical assets that just let you capture that arbitrage every day, right? To some extent, like you're not hundred um, percent. But but those kinds of people, like they're not going to let them just. They're going to have to be people who you know who take two years, be well versed in the industry, so forth that way. Um, for ourselves, like we we target you know kids who are data data heavy, data interested, sort of similarly. And then at the same time, you know, you have an overall interest. So like you may not be physically there scheduling it all the time or touching it, but you have an idea, right? That like, hey, look, like this power plant actually heats a bunch of people's home. And, you know, if this nuclear plant goes down, like this is a real like situation. Um, so we still do look for that interest, but I would say the larger like, majority of the larger trade houses they really do try to find someone who's like look i'm going to sit here learn physical business learn the ins and outs and then after you know two three years get my chance sort of that way makes sense we appreciate you sharing all this any final words of wisdom for the, the listeners out there in terms of how to prep themselves before we call it yeah for sure um i all i would say is you know like i do think uh especially with now with 
the competition out there. I just think like, like, like I, I do think that like your GPA is so, so important. So really like treat it like a job in your first couple of years in school. Cause now kids are getting sophomore internships and so forth. So like, I get it. We all want to have fun and I did too, but like that's a lesson that I didn't really learn early on that side. And then I think the other side, like, you know, yourself, you got other people change. I mean, um, as we get into more of a data intensive world or technology reaches us, I do think, you know, I used to hear from whatever grandparents or whatever, the best time is high school. High school's awesome. And then high school is eh, okay. And then college, you know, college is the best time of your life. Nothing gets better at freshman year. And you're like, uh, and then when you start making money and you're younger, you're like, okay, I can actually do a whole bunch of stuff. Like I just have to be willing to quit my job and, you know, lose money for six months. But if I save this money, I can do all this other stuff that I never imagined I could do. And now, I mean, I'm seeing people who I know who are, I would say, in their 30s or late 30s who are completely finding their passion later in life and stuff like that. So I would say, I, I don't think there's like you, like we are getting to a world where we are, you know, more technology. You're not just going to be working for that same company for like 10 years or whatever. So, so think of it that way. Don't like, don't put so much pressure on yourself. Like, oh man, like, ah, oh, I was, I, I I, I didn't go to that party last week and I didn't get this interview. Oh man, nothing works. Like, well, think about it. Like actually people are, you know, finding their passion way later in life nowadays. So. Yeah. If you don't find your path right away, it's not the end of the world. Um, yeah. It could be harder, but it, life is long, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's the way to go. To have some fun and uh, hopefully find your way. Great, man. I really appreciate your time and uh, I, I really enjoyed the chat. Thanks so much. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, Patrick at WallStreetOasis.com. Until next time.